Good morning, everyone. You may have noticed some extra sun in here this morning. The duplex that we used to call home is half down, and so we have all of this extra light from this side, but don't get too used to it, because uh, what they're putting in its place is taller. Um, but it makes a difference, doesn't it? We're going to continue our um, series, Politics by Design, this morning. Um, and just, just to kind of lay out what we've seen so far, we've seen that uh, by God's design, built into creation, and not just creation as in the world as we know it, but ourselves as kind of the capstone of creation, we've seen that God's design was moving towards something that was truly political. A city, a populating of the earth, a ruling and reigning, humans manifesting the image of God by reflecting his righteous rule. We've also seen um, that following the fall of humankind with the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, that God has delegated justice to governments in his stead so that he can express his patience against sin and move towards plan A, which has always been towards this uh, manifestation of God's image broadly across the world, again, towards a society, towards a city, towards a polis, towards something political. Um, I also hinted last week at the fact that although in Genesis 9 the foundation of government is established, and in Genesis 11 and 12 we see a parting of ways between the nations and the nation that God miraculously begins in, or in Abraham and his family line, um, again, a society, I, I hinted at the fact that that culminates in a place where both of those epically fail. Because both of them, the leadership of the nation of Israel and the rulers of the nations, in this case Rome, put Jesus, the Messiah, on trial. In fact, it is the capital punishment that is granted to government in Genesis chapter 9 that becomes both the sentence of Jesus and amazingly God's tool of redemption to do something new. And before we can talk about politics, I know we still haven't really gotten to the start line in our conversations of Christian political engagement, but before we can talk about that, we have to understand one of the most important ideas of what it means when Christ came, which the scriptures call consistently and regularly the kingdom of God. Okay? And just before we even open our Bibles, will you just recognize with me before that whatever the kingdom of God is, the imagery that's used there, the metaphor, the illustration is clearly one of political significance, right? There are a lot of metaphors that the Bible uses for this new community that God is forming in Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the living God. We are the sheep and he is our shepherd. But all of those fit within the largest confine. We are the kingdom of God. So that's what I want to look at this morning, and I want to look at it right where it butts up against, right where it touches and even bleeds 
against those powers put in place in Genesis chapter 9. In other words, I want to look at Jesus as he stands before Pontius Pilate, just hours before his crucifixion. So if you would with me this morning, open your Bibles to John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible this morning, right in the front of, uh, of you in the back of the pew, you should be able to find one. And if you look at the index a few pages in, look for the New Testament book of the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 18. What's happened leading up to this is that through one of Jesus' uh, closest constituents, a man named Judas, he's been handed, handed over to the religious leaders who have been seeking an opportunity to take his life. He's been put on a mock trial before the high priest and the Jewish Sanhedrin, and now he's been brought before Pilate who is effectively the governor who oversees Judea, where all of the Jews uh, lead, and they need Pilate's consent to put Jesus to death. Um, With Rome stepping in over Israel, they took away their right to uh, their own capital punishment. They took away the ability for them to operate as that final facet of government on their own, and so they're bringing him to Pilate, not because they need his opinion, but because they need his stamp of approval on what they've already determined to do. But I want you to notice as we read this passage, and we're going to read a a pretty solid length here, the entire trial under Pilate, I want you to notice how the ideas of Jesus as king and Pilate's authority and the nature of the kingdom of God all flow through this, which is somewhat surprising because, again, Uh, this is Jesus on trial, and yet as we look at this, the way Jesus behaves here as a defendant is a little bit mystifying. We're not going to see him um, explaining or, or proclaiming his innocence. In fact, to some degree, we're going to see him having a very personal and intimate conversation with Pilate that seems out of place in a courtroom. But read with me, beginning here in verse 28 of John 18, and we're going to read all the way into chapter 19 quite a ways. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king, and they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, we need your wisdom this morning. We need to, your spirit to guide you into all truth. We hear Jesus' claim this morning that he came to testify of the truth, and we desire to know it this morning. And so as we look at this concept of the kingdom of God, I, I again pray, Lord, that you would shave off the rough edges of our political witness, that you would help us to see in a new light your church and your kingdom and you, Jesus, as our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think it's hard to see how political this passage is in nature. Also, maybe you noticed that from a Christian perspective, knowing who Jesus really is, knowing how the story ends, that yes, he will 
be handed over to crucifixion. And yes, he will hang on the cross for hours. And yes, he will die and be buried in a tomb and then will be raised again to life. This passage is dripping with irony. He's mocked as king of the Jews, although that's exactly who he is. Even when, uh, even when Pilate brings him forward and says, Behold the man. And here Jesus is crowned in that thorn and bleeding from his flogging and draped in that robe. Even that has more significance than Pilate realizes, as we will see. But what's important for us this morning is to focus on this reality of Jesus as king and the nature of his kingdom. And it's very easy to misread this, mostly because we are byproducts of a modern way of thinking that draws very strong separation, for example, between religion and politics. And so it's very easy to read this through this lens and see Jesus as distancing himself from something political, when in actuality he is redefining, redefining a new political entity. And so, as Jesus stands here on trial, notice the opening question here again in verse 33. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, John doesn't even feel the, na- uh, the need to mention that this is the Jews' primary accusation. But if you look in Matthew and Mark and Luke, with a unified voice, they all say, this is the crime. That Jesus has, uh, has identified himself as a king. And that is a threat to Rome. That is a problem for Caesar. And so this accusation is specifically chosen to demand action from Pilate, because if Jesus is a political rival to the Roman Empire, if he is a rabble-rouser, if he is stirring up a rebellion, then that needs to be nipped in the bud right now. Now, what's important that you can't see in the Greek here is um, that the emphasis of that question, are you the king of the Jews, is on the pronoun. Are you the king of the Jews? Right? Pilate is not asking because he thinks that this is the case. He thinks to himself, this guy? Right? He can tell by Jesus' dress that he is poor. He's obviously been handed over by the leaders of the Jews, so it's not like he has the popular support. Are you the king of the Jews? And notice what's interesting here. This shapes the standard of what follows. Jesus answers with a question. But notice what the question is. He says here in chapter 18, verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Ask yourself a simple question. What does that have to do with the evidence on trial? He's asked a direct question. The accusation is, you are the king of the Jews. And remember, Jesus and Pilate and the Jews all know the political import. The question is, are you a threat to Rome? And Jesus says, are you asking because you want to know or because you've been told so? What would that be in a modern courtroom? 
What would be the next thing that happens if somebody approached the judge and asked them a question like this? They'd be held in contempt. In fact, what happens in this trial is a reversal of roles. It is not Jesus who is on trial, but Jesus who is operating as judge here. And here, he operates as the prosecuting attorney and starts to look for Pilate's motivation in all of this. And we'll see that this continues. But notice, he's not trying to avoid the question because he's not a king at all. If anything, he can't give a yes or no answer because both wouldn't convey the truth. If he says yes, Pilate would assume he's, again, a messiah whose job is to overthrow Rome. In fact, even in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been trying to avoid that misunderstanding. In John chapter 6, all of those who have been fed during the feeding of the 5,000 come back. And not only do they want him to feed, him, feed them miraculously again, but they also want to make him king. And so Jesus actively pushes back on that, avoids that. If he says no here, then the nature of who Jesus is and what he's doing would also be misunderstood. In fact, notice, although Jesus doesn't give a direct answer here, he does imply the significance of it in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate gets it, right? What does he say after this? So you are a king. Right? You can't have a kingdom without a king. If you are a king, you have a kingdom. The two go hand in hand. In fact, and this is essential for us to understand this morning, this is the primary thing that Jesus has talked about the duration of his public ministry. Mark tells us that Jesus went, went about proclaiming the kingdom of God. Matthew describes the entire teaching ministry of Jesus as calling for people to repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is all Jesus talks about. When he tells parables, he says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? When he opens the Sermon on the Mount, he opens it with a focus, with an emphasis of the, on the kingdom of God. What does he teach his disciples? He, deci he teaches his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come. There is no good news that Jesus brings that is not the good news of the kingdom. And again, recognize this morning that that means that Jesus is political that Christianity by its nature is political. Jesus claims here to be king. Now, this deals with the first of a couple of false dichotomies we need to nail down this morning and get rid of. And the first is that divide between the religious and the political. In our modern way, because of ideas like separation of church and state, because of ideas like the separation between fact and value, and because of this idea of a public square that we try and keep untainted by controversial beliefs, we tend to keep these two things separate, but it doesn't actually work. If you believe or think of religion conceptually in broad enough terms that religion is ultimately about ultimate things, in other words, you don't have to have a God who you can name to be religious. As soon as you answer questions about what is human life about and what does it all mean 
and where is it going and what is right and what is wrong, you are innately religious, right? You can't determine morality with a beacon and a test tube. This idea, this constrained idea we have that these are the facts and over here are personal values doesn't actually play out. And so actually politics is always tremendously religious. Before we can decide how to shape society, we have to ask where everything is going. What's right and what's wrong? What's the purpose and goal of human life? How do we hold it accountable? All of these questions touch on religious ideas. In fact, one of the dangers, although I think there is a value to the original idea of separation in church and, of church and state, one of the dangers of it is that people can quietly smuggle in their own religious beliefs because they're not officially recognized as one of the capital R religions. Okay, And so in other words, I can say I believe these values because of the Bible or because of my belief in God, because I'm a Christian or these types of things, and because of that, that you know, it's like you go through the metal detector and that rings off and says, oh, I'm sorry, those things aren't allowed in the public space. But other people who have just similar beliefs can bring them in because they're not officially tied to this thing. Okay? Any argument for the common good, for the shaping of society, always requires the big questions. Okay? But also, at least in the case of Christianity here, the religious nature of what Jesus is doing here is political. Now let me put it in the broad story that we've been talking about. God's initial plan is be fruitful and multiply and cultivate and rule. But Adam and Eve's response to that is to pursue their own autonomy, to elevate themselves apart from God, to dominate over one another, to dominate over the earth as opposed to righteously ruling on Christ's behalf. But like I said earlier, God doesn't give up on plan A. What we need to recognize, though, is the way that God traces from Genesis chapter 2 with creation to Revelation 21 with this beautiful garden city where society lives in righteousness and justice and in communion with God as was supposed to be, where the image of God is fully restored, is not something that the governments of this world, the societies of this world, the cities, the nations, the countries of this world could accomplish. But the way that God does it is not to give up on a kingdom, but to go about it in a different way. And that different way is embodied in Jesus Christ. In fact, consider this. In the book of Daniel, Daniel has a vision of one like a son of man who stands before the throne of God Almighty and is handed all the kingdoms, all the power, all the authority. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus' own self identification. He refers to himself regularly, consistently. It's probably his favorite name for himself as the Son of Man, and he's drawing it from Daniel. But because we as Christians know Jesus is fully God and fully man, we can miss the intonation of Daniel in and of itself. What's striking about Daniel chapter 7 is that all of those things, all authority, all power, all glory, all kingdoms are handed to a human, a Son of Man. Now again, 
that was Adam and Eve's destiny. That was the plan for humanity. One of the things that happens when Jesus comes, as John tells us in his introduction, the Word has been forever with God, and the Word was God, but then in verse 14, the Word became flesh. And Jesus comes effectively as what, human, or as what humanity was always meant to be. In fact, one of the striking ironies of this passage is when Jesus is presented after being flogged and mocked and clothed in this mock royalty. And Pilate says simply, Ecce homo in the Latin, behold the man. We have a reflection of Genesis and the creation of man. In fact, this happens on a Friday on the sixth day, just like the creation of Adam and Eve did. And it's ironic because like Andy read this morning in Isaiah. He was marred beyond human recognition of his majesty or his beauty. There was nothing, but he was humble and his visage, right? And yet here is human life in all of its potential, perfect, unstained by sin or selfishness, fully embodying the rule of God in the image of man as was supposed to be. What I'm suggesting to you is for God to create the society that he has in mind, he needs a new humanity, right? And all you have to do is read through the Bible or read through the history books to see that that is the great flaw in human destiny. It's not that we don't have the right aspirations, it's that they're always bent by sin and selfishness by arrogance and pride, by autonomy from God and these types of things. And so Jesus comes as a new king, as a human king, the one who will receive all kingdoms, but also as the forerunner of a new humanity. What I'm suggesting is Jesus is bringing about a kingdom that's citizenship is new. In fact, John doesn't mention the kingdom of God very often. It's not the language that he uses, although it's very heavy in Matthew, and it's present in Mark, and it's present in Luke. John only references it in two different places. One is right here, and the other is in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he comes in the night because he's a Pharisee. He's one of the religious leaders, but he's not convinced Jesus is a fraud. He wants to know more. And the burning question on his heart has to do with the kingdom of God. And before he can even voice it, Jesus speaks up and he says, I tell you the truth, that no one will see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And they have this following discussion about how exactly that comes to pass. But the goal of Jesus' coming is not merely forgiveness. It's forgiveness of the rebellion against God for the reauthorization to a new way to be human, to a new human society, to the restoration of the image of God. This is what's going on. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And so he does 
identify himself as a king, but he does make a distinction here. Now, here's another false dichotomy we need to break down. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, sometimes we read that as being, my kingdom has nothing to do with earth. Right? And this is the other division we make. And so Christianity and what Jesus did is about heaven and government is about life on earth. Right? But what Jesus is saying here is not specifically in the Greek, my kingdom is not of this world, but not from this world. In fact, it's clearer to see in the ESV if you keep reading uh, when he says, um, um, at the very end of verse 36 there, but my kingdom is not from the world. The language is the same there. He basically makes a distinction here and he says, it is political, but it is different. Jesus doesn't operate as a king like a king of the other nations. Again, pretty visible in this story because this, according to John's gospel, is when God the Father glorifies Jesus. Not the resurrection, not the ascension when he gets to the throne. When Jesus prays in John 17, now glorify me with the glory that was mine before all the ages, it's very clear this is it. This is Jesus' enthronement ceremony. The crucifixion is the conquering victory of Jesus as king. And so he's not a king like the other nations, and it's not a kingdom like the other kingdoms. We already saw one way in, that, that, in which that's the case, which is that the only way into this kingdom is to be born again. Think of citizenship in the modern world, right? There's a few different ways we become citizens. One is you just are born in the nation and therefore you are a citizen of that nation. Or you can be naturalized, right? There's some sort of a process that you can move through that says this nation is my home, I want to be a part of its people, and you can become a part of that nation. But Jesus sets up a different model and he says the only way in is by birth and none of you were born there. Right? Unless one is born again. And Nicodemus is right to ask in John chapter 3, how exactly does that work? One birth, one death, that's the way human life goes. But Jesus is trying to convey that citizenship in the kingdom of God comes through the gift of God. It has to be responded to and received, not through the action of our, our own doing, but actually the action of Jesus Christ. If you read the book of Galatians, you will see that through the death of Jesus, those who believe in him become the children of God and therefore citizens of the kingdom. But it's not just different in its entrance, it's different in its behavior. Consider the Sermon on the Mount. There Jesus describes kind of the constitution, if you will, of the kingdom of God. And in it, he reverses all the values of all the other kingdoms. Whereas these kingdoms are about power, his is about service. Where these, things, these kingdoms put status in wealth, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Right? All of the Beatitudes that open the Sermon on the Mount turn the world on its head. And he goes on and he says that we should love our enemies. That we should love our neighbors uh, that we should not allow money to dominate our lives, whether in riches or in poverty. 
but seek first the kingdom of God, right? There's a reorientation in these areas. This kingdom is lived differently. In another place, Jesus says, unless you act like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, right? He reverses all the values. He lays down a different way to be human. And then most importantly, he empowers that community through the provision of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant in the Old Testament begins to look beyond what God is doing in Israel to what he will do in Jesus Christ. And what it says is that God is going to give people a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Or to use another way it puts it, that God is going to write his law not on tablets of stone, think of the Ten Commandments, but directly on our hearts. Or as Ezekiel puts it, that God is going to give his own spirit and put it in you, and now you will be obedient. What we see in the Old Testament is God's demands. What we see in the New Testament is God's fulfilling of those demands. And that also changes the nature of this kingdom. Jesus says here that this kingdom doesn't come about by sword. Right? When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he continues there in verse 36, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. He's talking there about the sword. In fact, remember that just earlier in this chapter, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, didn't understand this concept. And so when Judas and Roman centurions and the Sanhedrin come in the night to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off one of their ears. And Jesus says, no, Peter, not this way. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he heals the servant, and then they take him away. The, the recognition here is that the way the kingdom of God conquers, if you will, is different than the way of this world. The way the kingdom of God expands its territories is different. Okay. Now, here's another false dichotomy that almost gets it right. Sometimes we think that Christianity, or maybe you can broaden it out and talk about religion, or maybe we would even say the kingdom of God is about the internal, and government is about the external. The problem is, there is no division like that within the world. Okay? Uh, what we believe on the inside takes shape on the outside. And oftentimes this idea that Christianity is about the inside and not the outside comes from a mistranslation of a kingdom saying. Jesus is speaking to the Jews and he says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation for the kingdom of God is, and in most translations it says, within you. And so what we hear is, all right, the kingdom of God is Jesus ruling and reigning in my heart. It has nothing to do with the world as it is. It has nothing to do with life out there. It's an internal, it's a spiritual reality, not a physical one. The problem with that is, if you go back and look, the point that Jesus is making is the audience can't seem to observe the coming of kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is in their midst. That's the language there. In other words, right in front of their faces. The kingdom is where the king is. The king is right there. And so they say, when will we see the kingdom of God? And he goes, if you don't see it now, you're not going to see it at all. The problem there is not that it isn't there. The problem is that they are blind to see it. Now, again, there is a truth here. And the truth is this, that government, proper laws and enforcement cannot change what's most wrong 
with humans, which is the heart. Jesus says, all wickedness, all evil in life flows out of the heart. The government can't touch the heart. Government can't even see motives. In fact, every decision government makes has to be based on the evidence, but there's a whole locked box unavailable to them. Are they lying or telling the truth? Is all the evidence there, right? Is there penitence? And does that demand a different sentence? All of that is hidden from view. Government has never discovered a way to conform people into righteousness. And that was true of Israel, even though their law was perfect. And their government appointed by God and described in its roles by God, and yet it could not make a righteous people. Now, sometimes we say stupid things like, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And what we're trying to convey there is that truth, that there's a heart problem. But that's, again, why we need government, because government can't change the heart, but it can constrain behavior. As Martin Luther King said, it can't change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. Right? And so government has a purpose, but it cannot make new people. When we say that Christianity begins with the heart, what we're recognizing is it gets to, if you will, the heart of the matter, that it begins where the problem is, but obviously, clearly, it overflows into the rest of life. The idea that you can hermetically seal off your societal self and your Christian religion is nonsense. You cannot follow Jesus without changing your political viewpoints because you are now a subject of his kingdom because you're now being conformed into his image. The way your heart goes, so goes your actions, so goes your attitudes. Yes, we're called to love our neighbor and we call that the golden rule because it's for everyone, but the way that the gospel goes about accomplishing it is reconnecting us with the love of God. And that love is shed abroad in our hearts, Paul says. It begins to overflow and work its way out. In other words, the way Jesus' kingdom works is on the inside, but it's moving towards an outside. Now, they have this conversation. Pilate's working through things. He presents Jesus, hail king of the Jews. Nobody gets the joke. And then... The Jews go, all right, you want to know why he should die? It's because he blasphemed. Because he identifies himself as the son of God. Now that one, for some reason, shakes Pilate up. Now he's nervous. When he was just, uh, you know, taking the life of somebody who claimed to be a king, that's one thing. But a divine person? Somebody who has some sort of divine ability and clearly has a resume that demonstrates it in some way? Right? That bothers him, and so he pulls Jesus in for a second interrogation. Verse 9, he entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Notice how Jesus answers. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Notice what Jesus doesn't do here. He doesn't deny Pilate's authority in its entirety. He doesn't even say, irrelevant, because I'm the king. He puts Pilate's secular authority back in the confines of Genesis 9, in Romans 13. 
that authority is appointed by God and serves a purpose. In other words, he says, you are accountable for what you do, Pilate. In fact, notice a couple of things here. Listen to Pilate's language again. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? There is no stronger authority in life than the authority to take a life. Notice that Pilate makes no reference here to Caesar, to any authority above him. It's just a power play. It's a muscle flex. And he says, why won't you defend yourself? Don't you know that I'm the one with all the power? And Jesus doesn't deny that there's power there. He doesn't deny there's authority there. He doesn't even deny that that authority is connected with God. But he does remind him that it's accountable. I want you to notice that right here at the inception of the kingdom of God, at the crowning ceremony of the king, Jesus leaves room for the reality of government as a whole. And so that brings us to another question. How do these two things coexist? And we've already laid down a couple of false dichotomies, right? The inside-outside. This is where Martin Luther got it wrong when he tried to say there are two kingdoms, government, an instrument of God, and the kingdom of God, or the church, an instrument of God. The problem with that is, if there's two things ruling exactly overlapping, then we have to find a way up to divide up humanity. And so again, this is for the internal and the spiritual, this is for the external and the secular, but those divides don't work. In fact, let's add one more misunderstanding to the list, which is that... Um, that Christianity is about the private and the personal decisions. And government is about society. Okay. Again, Jesus is starting a king here, kingdom here. It's entirely societal, and its primary expression in life right now is this, the church, a community, a community that lives by different rules under the authority of a different king. We'll talk about this in a few weeks, but the best way to understand the church as it exists in America or any other nation is as an embassy. Okay. As an embassy of another kingdom entirely. But getting back to this false dichotomy here, getting back to this idea between um, between the personal and the societal, Jesus demands societal change. He demands the kingdom operate as a place of true righteousness and justice, of sharing with the poor, of, again, overturning these status symbols that the world loves so much, of breaking down the barriers between Jew and Gentile, okay? When we talk about the church being Catholic, what we mean is universal, what we mean is greater than any boundaries than we would draw in other ways ethnic boundaries, linguistic boundaries, national boundaries, even local boundaries, right? We are not the church, except in the fact that we are a part of the church. And so this church is to be a place that represents and reflects this new society, but it coexists with government. And here's the best way to understand it, okay? I said earlier that the church is an embassy. It is an embassy of the future, we're a time-traveling traveling embassy, okay? Here's what I mean. 
What the Bible seems to lay out is that government's purpose is from creation, as we saw, until the new creation, and it is still installed. But right in the midst of this placeholder, God is doing a new thing, creating a new society, drawing people out of those societies into a new place and creating a new humanity and leading to a new city of righteousness and justice. And so the kingdom of God is both now but not yet. It's inaugurated right here at Jesus' crucifixion, but it won't be consummated until Jesus returns. And so all we are are effectively representation of the fact that that is coming. Now, do you see why that's different than the two kingdoms model? It's because we can say with confidence, being a part of human society as it is, there's a duty that we owe to government. They have a right to rule, and we should live here. But it won't last forever. One day, every knee will bow, even the strong and powerful, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, which, remember, is a political statement. Okay? And so we live in this kind of weird place. If you can imagine, imagine you're an, in, living in an embassy in a, in a nation, and you know within a couple weeks' times, that nation is going to become a part of your own kingdom, right? That doesn't mean you start, you know, disobeying the crosswalk because what's it all matter? It's all going to burn, right? You're not an anarchist, but you see that you live in this temporary space, okay? There's this overlap here, so we live from the future. Let me draw a parallel. If you were with us a few months ago, we talked about the fact that another institution that God built into creation was the family, right? Husband and wife and children is God's design, but in the New Testament, because of Jesus Christ, Paul can say, you know what, it's also good to be single. And we talked about the fact that single people can be, as Christians, a representation of the future, where they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Okay? And so they become a living testimony of what's to come. There's this line in a Leslie Newbegin book where he says that the church is a witness and it's as if people are walking towards the slowly rising sun and the rest of humanity is looking away from the sunrise but they can see the coming of the sun reflected on the light of the faces of the people but if they want to see the sun they have to turn around and walk with them right effectively this is what's going on with the church this is where all the complexity comes from in political thought okay so if jesus is king now then what does that mean for our allegiance to our own government? If all of this is going to end, then how does that change the way we relate to society here? But the first and primary thing you need to draw from here is that God's solution to the human problem is political and it's called the church. Government in the sense that we think of it, what's going on out there, will not bring about the kingdom of God. In fact, let's take a step back. Government is not the kingdom of God. No specific or particular government can declare themselves the representative of Christ's kingdom and execute their job. In fact, whereas government, Romans 13, is given the sword, the church is not. We're just given the keys. That's what Jesus gives Peter and his disciples, the keys to the kingdom. And if you read the passage there, basically what the church does, like any other embassy would do, 
is validates those who are its citizens. Okay. Now, if we were an embassy of another nation, let's call it Jesus land, and you came in here, you can't be given a passport by the embassy. You can't be given citizenship by the embassy, but we can recognize it and validate it, and that's what the church does. We put the name of Jesus on stuff, both on the truth and on one another. That's why church discipline distances the ability for us to affirm that label. Right? But we don't carry the sword. We don't convert at the end of a sword, nor do we carry about capital punishment in our midst. Our only job is as representatives of a coming kingdom to say, this is of Jesus, this is of not. Now maybe you can see the foolishness of taking the political world as it is and trying to slap the Jesus label there. That's not the point. That's not the purpose. Now let me add one more thing before we close here. For the last couple of hundred years, we have been anti-Constantinianism, okay? Constantine has become this proverbial punching bag for when Christians get it wrong. If you're not familiar with the story, here's what happens. It's hundreds of years after Jesus. The Roman Empire still exists. It's broken into four parallel rulers, and one of them, Constantine, apparently, has a vision of a cross and is told to conquer in that name and becomes the uniter of the whole Roman Empire and begins to reform the Roman Empire with Christianity having a central place. Diocletian, right before this, was persecuting the church, killing Christians, and he makes Christianity legal. And he begins to put constraints on the pagan ways of Rome instead. And he, you know, summons the church for the Council of Nicaea to get unified on some things. All these things happen. And it's easy for us today to say that's where the church went wrong. Because the church joined itself to the political. I would suggest that's a misunderstanding of what happens there. And if you want a real culprit for sword-bearing Christianity, you've got to wait till Charlemagne. Constantine, and I, I would recommend if you're a historian, read the book by Peter Lightheart, Defending Constantine, where he actually walks through the evidence. But here's the point. What I would suggest happens there is because the church has been the church, this alternate society, just living its life out publicly in the midst. Government goes, you've got some good ideas. And it comes as a student of the kingdom. Now, that doesn't make every decision they do the decision of God. In fact, if, again, you look at the story, actually, those Christians who were contemporary to Constantine had their prophetic voice still, held him accountable, challenged these things. But oftentimes, in fact, our entire Western history has been shaped by this new society. We may question if there's such a thing as Christians as a just war, but realize without Christianity, there was no concept of just war at all. War was just war. It didn't need to be justified. We may look at all of the advancements we've made in human rights and free speech and stuff, but all of this roots back in Christianity. But ultimately, every human government will have to just recognize that they're holding their crowns in waiting, the one whose right it is to rule that they will be accountable. As I pointed out here, Jesus operates as judge in this story. In fact, notice what he says here. Again, put this back in a courtroom for me. 
verse uh, 10, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he delivered me over to you as the greater sin. Do you see what he does there? He says there's sin involved here. This sin is on trial and he gives the verdict. And he doesn't absolve Pilate of his role. He just says the instigator here has the greater sin. Jesus operates here as judge. In fact, to some degree, the nations are going to be judged by what they do with Jesus. As it says in Psalm 2, the Lord laughs in derision at the nations who stand against him and his anointed. And then there's a line, kiss the sun while there is still time. But here's where I want to finish. Israel's destiny was to recognize the lordship of Yahweh, that their God was king. Even their own kings, men like David and Solomon, only were representative of Yahweh's rule and held accountable. They weren't the most powerful man in the land, but were subject to these things. But notice the irony that happens here at the end of the story. They hate Jesus so much, they run out of political options Pilate this whole time is doing everything he can to deliver Jesus. Even when he flogs Jesus, the hope is to say, isn't this sufficient? I've flogged him. I've punished him. Now, don't you want to release him? He pulls out an old law and he says, I'm going to release somebody. Why don't I release Jesus? And they choose Barabbas instead. It goes down the whole line. But when it comes to the end of it, notice the card that they play here verse 12 from then on Pilate sought to release him but the Jews cried out if you release this man you are not Caesar's friend now a friend of Caesar there is a technical term it's somebody who operates with the favor of Caesar what this is is a veiled threat you let this come off and release him and we're going to narc on you we're going to go straight to Rome and say did you know that Pilate is not taking rebels seriously right but notice He says, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation on the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. You've got to hear that for what it is in the mouth of a Jew. It is apostasy. Right here, they settle for a human government who will get the job done, who will make life the way they want it to be, a power that will accomplish their will, and in doing so, they deny the kingdom of God. That is always a risk for the church. Whenever we see government as a means to an end to build our own kingdom, even if we think that kingdom is Jesus' kingdom, we come in the place where we're very tempted to say with the Jews, we have no king but Caesar. And obviously, if they have no king but Caesar, they have no prophetic witness. They have no way to hold him accountable. And here is the thing. Our allegiance to Jesus is primary. 
we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdoms of God and therefore representatives of that kingdom. In fact, Paul tells a group of Jews living in a Roman colony in Philippi, you're citizens of heaven and don't forget it. Remember again, that's political language. It's more than just, you know, God has reserved a seat for me in heaven. They, they live for Jesus. Even when Peter tells us to obey government, he says, submit to government, but as free men. And then later he says, servants of God. Okay, so there's a balance here. There's a tension. But the most important thing is the kingdom of God is not something we're called to build on earth. And when we talk about, like we did a few weeks ago, the value of producing culture and shaping society, even when we talk about bringing about justice in the world as it is, that does not bring about the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom, the proclamation of the gospel, that brings about the kingdom, and ultimately, it won't finally be brought about until Jesus returns. And so we're a people of great hope, but in the present tense, terrible realism. And so if we're going to find a place to set political engagement for Christians, it's got to rightly understand the kingdom of God. And I would suggest to you, and I suppose this is no surprise with me being a pastor, that God's great plan today to bring about a just and righteous society is the church. And so that's where your political engagement should begin. And the truth is, if we can't overcome our racism within the body of Christ, or economic injustice within the body of Christ, if we can't navigate here with forgiveness and reconciliation, if we can't develop habits of humility and service here, then we have nothing to offer the world out there except what they already have in spades. But God will bring about his kingdom. And he will bring it about on earth. And we can testify to that hope. And we can embody it now. Only a reflection. Only in its beginning and not its consummation, not its end. By aligning ourselves with Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we serve a king named Jesus. We recognize that all will bow to that name. But we also serve a different king, different than the other kings, a crucified king, one whose initial crown was a crown of thorns pressed into his head one whose greatest glory was a travesty of justice. One whose first proclamation as king was, Father, forgive them. And that's such amazing news for us, Lord, because it doesn't just shape those of us who already know you. It invites those who don't.
all who are a part of another society, all who are a part of another nation, all who stand in rebellion against God. We are a nation as Americans of rebels, but the kingdom of God doubly so. Forgiven rebels, those who have surrendered to the right and just king, who is also our justifier, who has also made us right before God. No other time has a kingdom begun with surrender. And we just want to, as a church this morning, pledge our allegiance to you. We want to proclaim with 2,000 years of church history, Jesus is Lord. We want to demand and, and state your sovereignty over our entire lives, over what we do with our neighbors, what we do in the voting booth, of what we do when people sin against us, Lord, all of these things are facets of our citizenship. And I pray that we wouldn't suffer from these false dichotomies that loosen your grasp on the world as it is or lower our responsibility to our neighbors. And most importantly, Lord, that may make the mistake of saying with our very lives, we have no king but Caesar. God, we pray for your church that has often forgotten the reality of the kingdom of God, whether we've wrung our hands in despair or placed our hope in a place that doesn't belong or sought to do what only you can do by grace through old and tired and dead methods. Father, we pray for a new work in your church, for the sake of our nation, for the sake of the world. And we pray, as you taught us, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.